back in the fall, I told you that we were going to, um, over the next couple of years, work our way through the Gospel of John, not, not uninterrupted, but in sections. And in the fall, I taught a series of lessons in ti- uh, under the, the title, The Word Made Flesh. We did the first three chapters and then broke for the holidays and... Um, and now I want to pick up and, and be in John for the next couple of months under a new series entitled The Word Made Known. And we will um, then break and, and do some other things that God has given me for Evergreen. But over the next couple of years, we'll section by section uh, walk our way through the Gospel of John. And it, it truly is an extraordinary account of, of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so... Uh, you, you may remember that in the fall, in chapter 3, I taught a lesson entitled, Answering a Seeker. That was the interview that Jesus had with Nicodemus, and that was a, a, a moment initiated by Nicodemus. He, he wanted to know the answer to some questions. He wanted to know more about Jesus, and so he came and found Jesus, and they had a, a conversation. Sometimes, that's the way it happens. Sometimes the fish really do jump into the boat. Other times we have conversations that, uh, that, that may intimidate us. And it's not an accident that John, as he composed his gospel, put the interview with a seeker, Nicodemus, in chapter 3, and then virtually uh, back-to-back, Uh, gives us the account of a conversation that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman in chapter 4. I want us to to understand this this event. And so I've given you, you'll see today, I've given you a little bit of an elaborate outline, uh, but I'm going to simplify it as we we close this morning. So don't, don't be intimidated. Jesus is going to model for us how to talk to people who are initially maybe even hostile to the gospel, but a skeptic as opposed to a seeker. Um, but I want, to, I want to call attention to this contrast uh, between chapter 3 and chapter 4 of, of John as, as we sort of kick off this, this conversation, because it's not accidental that John put these two stories side by side. And I think it's the contrast that, uh, that he wants us to see. I mean, think about this. Nicodemus, in chapter 3, Nicodemus was a seeker. He was a man, and he was a highly educated and credentialed scholar. We get to chapter 4, and we have a Samaritan woman. Her name is never even given to us. Rather than being a seeker, she's actually hostile skeptical. Nicodemus is a man, but this is a woman. In that day and time, that was a huge distinction in and of itself. While Nicodemus was a scholar, this woman was uneducated. We know that by the bad theology that she betrays in her questions in this chapter. Nicodemus was a Jew. That means he followed the religion of the Old Testament, and it was the religion that had been revealed by God to his people, the Jews. 
He was also a Pharisee, which while Pharisees have a bad connotation for us because of their opposition to Jesus, the fact of the matter was, in the first century, Pharisees were typically men who lived by the highest moral standards. They were excessively diligent to be careful not to live a life uh, that would offend God as best they understood. Now, that turned into legalism, but while legalism is a problem, the motivation to live a highly moral and, and blameless life is, uh, is noble. He was also a part of the Sanhedrin, which means that as the ruling body of Israel, Nicodemus had social status. Everybody knew who he was. They recognized him when he walked down the street. They parted out of his way as he passed, probably bowing in respect as he walked by. And yet this contrast, the Samaritan woman with no name, hostile, uneducated, she was a Samaritan. You say, well, why does that matter? Well, let me give you the background of the Samaritans real quickly. In the Old Testament, when the nation of Judah was carried off into exile by the Babylonians, it was not a 100% exile of all the citizens of Judah. Rather, they took the best and the brightest. They took the the, the intelligent, the qualified, those that they thought would have some contribution that they could make to the Babylonian Empire, and they left behind what we would call the dregs of society, the people who were seen to be expendable, not useful in any way. As the nation was carried off into exile, there were a flood of foreigners who now migrated into what was basically unoccupied territory. As the Jews that were left with no resources, the temple had been destroyed. They had no way of of surviving in their traditional model. Just as an act of survival, they began to marry the foreigners who came in. Fast forward two generations, and Israel, uh, Judah is now being released from exile. They're being returned to their homeland. And their first order of business is to rebuild the temple, the center reality of, uh, of Judah's culture. The Samaritans show up, and they're called Samaritans now because they're no longer really Jews. They're, they've intermarried and, and they've become something else than what they were. They show up with real enthusiasm and say, man, we are so glad that you've come home, that you've been released, that you're back. Let us help rebuild the temple. We'll get things back the way they were. And the Jews, with disdain, looked at those volunteers and said, you're not not one of us. You're unclean. You've married foreigners. You've compromised the faith. You're you're half-breeds. And they kicked them to the curb. So the Samaritans went back to the region that they lived in and built a place of worship on a mountain called Gerizim as a rival to the temple that was being constructed in Jerusalem. Well, there was a Jewish high priest later that, that went and burned it down, but that still was the high place where the Samaritans would worship. That's going to show up in this chapter. Samaritans were considered to be dogs to Jews. They were considered to be traitors to the faith, unclean by definition because they had intermarried with those who were not Jewish. And the rivalry was, um, uh, was deadly, frankly. 
Not only was she a Samaritan, but we find out in this passage that in contrast to the high morality of Nicodemus the Pharisee, this is a woman who'd had five marriages. She'd been married to five different husbands. There was something of her life story that was less than sparkling and certainly a long way from pure. Not only was Nicodemus a Sanhedrin member, a man of social status, someone that they bowed before as he walked down the street, this woman, she not only had five husbands, but she is living with a sixth man now. And because of the way there's the emphasis in the Greek language, when Jesus tells her her own story, he says, you've had five different husbands, and the man that you're with right now is not your husband. The emphasis in the Greek seems to imply that he was a married man, but not married to her. Nicodemus was a man of respect. The people recognized him when he walked by. This woman, they recognized her when she walked by, but they didn't part and bow. They whispered and laughed. John put the story of Nicodemus, the seeker, in chapter 3, and the Samaritan woman, the skeptic, in chapter 4, because he wanted us to catch a critical truth, and that is that the gospel is universal and everybody needs Jesus. Now, some of you may understand that in a way that others don't. If you came to know Christ after you had lived a life that you look back on and you just thank God that He saved you from who you were, you may identify more with this woman. Maybe you grew up in a family that went to church all the time and you came to Christ at an early age and and you don't have any real period in your life that's dramatically sinful and, and uh, outrageously immoral. But let me tell you something, whether, you're, whether you've been respectable your whole life or whether you've come out of deep, dark, damaging sin, the fact of the matter is we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need Jesus. And that's why these two stories are back to back, because of the contrast. It tells us that nobody is outside the scope, outside the range of the invitation of the gospel. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. I know it says that we're going to do 42 verses, and we are, but it's doable, okay? Don't panic. Uh, You didn't bring a sack lunch, but I've got somebody over here with five loaves and two fish, so we'll be fine. We'll be fine. John chapter 4. The first three verses are a transition. You remember we finished chapter 3 with, uh, with Jesus baptizing in the same area with John, and it caused quite a stir. Well, that's, where he te- that's what we have in these verses. So then when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples were, he left Judah and went away again to Galilee. So he makes a move because it's, uh, there's too much attention that's been drawn to where he's been. So he goes to Galilee. But now we're going to see uh, the start of, of what I've called the conversation. This conversation is a personal encounter that Jesus is going to have with this woman. And I want to give you the process, the steps that, that you can identify as we break this conversation down. Because this is a way to have a conversation about faith with someone who is skeptical or maybe even hostile to the gospel. Now, there's going to be six steps, and you're going to go, man, I can't remember all this. I promise you I'm going to make it easy, okay? Let's go through these six steps, and then we'll, we'll get to a summary. 
In verse, verses 4 through 6, it's what I call association. Verse 4 says, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was just sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now what we know here is that in verse 4 it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. I think, I think the old language is uh, that he needs to go there. He had need to go there. Understand what this verse is saying. John is not telling us that, that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because it was on the way to where he was going. In fact, because not only were the Samaritans considered by the Jews to be unclean, but the very region of Samaria, just by virtue of the fact that it was occupied by Samaritans, the region itself was considered to be unclean. There were studious travel routes that had been set up by the Jews. You might call them off-ramps. If you were traveling between Jerusalem and Galilee or back, there were ways that you would travel and then you would off-ramp from that travel road and cross the river and take a parallel road, not in Samaria, until you were past Samaria, where you would take an off-ramp and cross over the river again and be in Galilee. And you would reverse that path on your way back to Jerusalem, specifically so you didn't have to even touch the dust of Samaria to your shoes. When this verse says Jesus had to pass through Samaria, it's not a geographical reference, it's a spiritual reference. It's saying he had to go for a divine appointment to a place where most Jewish men would never have gone. You see, the first part of evangelism is what we can call association. It simply means that we have to go to be with people who need to know Jesus. Who is your Samaritan? Who at your workplace is the morally outrageous person, the socially inept person, the educationally limited person, that person that you've thought about needing to go to church, needing to hear about Jesus, but you've told yourself, well, you know, really that conversation would be a waste of time because they're just not church people. One of the great sins, and I don't apologize for that language, one of the great sins that Christians in our generation commit regularly is that we decide for sinners whether they're ready to know about Jesus or not we have to go where they are but the next step is what I call awareness look at verse 7 a woman of Samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her give me a drink for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, though you're a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I call this awareness because it's very interesting what happened here. It's already been mentioned that it was about the sixth hour, which in, in biblical uh, reckoning means that it was about high noon. Now, the one thing that you know, if you've ever been in a, a village or a town where they still use water wells, is that typically the women go to the well very early in the morning, 
partly because they need water for cooking and, and, and all of the activities of the day, but also because if you have to carry a container to a well and then carry back a heavier container now filled with water, you want to do that before it gets to the heat of the day. Then late in the evening, they often return to the well when it's cooler and they get water for bathing and washing and, and to get them through the night. And that's the pattern. What you don't do is you don't go at high noon when the sun is high in the sky and the temperature is at its peak. And yet that's exactly what's happening in John chapter 4. This woman is not just running late. She's not just behind on her chores. She comes to the well at the specific time of day when she knows nobody else is going to be there because it's too painful for her to come in the morning when all she has when when she can listen to the whispers and the laughter and the mockery behind her back as she draws water. On this day she comes to the well, it's her normal traffic pattern of life, but she finds something a little bit out of the ordinary, a Jewish man is sitting by the well. She's not going to start a conversation with him. That, uh, she, she doesn't, uh, she's been abused. She knows the attitude that Jewish men have for Samaritans in general, but for Samaritan women, even worse. And so it's up to Jesus to show awareness. He has to initiate the conversation. Listen, the lesson here is, if you've got that person that God has put on your heart, and you know that they need to know Jesus... It is uh, an error on your part to say, I'm ready to talk whenever they want to bring up the subject. They're not going to bring up the subject. It's your job and my job to initiate the conversation. Now, see, the thing, the reason I've called this awareness is because t a typical Jewish man would not even have acknowledged, even if he had seen this woman, he wouldn't have acknowledged this woman because she would not have been considered a real human being. Well, how does that work for us? Well, our problem is probably not so much uh, that kind of, uh, of rabid prejudice. Our problem is that we are surrounded by people who we view as extras in our movie. I mean, we walk through life thinking that we're the lead actor in our story, and everybody else around us are the bit players that fill in the spaces. You ever watched a movie and, and there are hundreds of people? I mean, hundreds of people coming and going in this movie and, and filling in the background and, and going about their business. And then you get to the credits and they roll the credits. And they're like 12 people with their names in the, in, in the cast list. There were 12 people. There were hundreds of people. Yeah, but see, those people were just background. They don't get credit for the movie. They're not recognized as contributors to the story. They're just like the wallpaper behind us. But see, we do that in real life. The lady that checks us out at the grocery store, the guy behind the counter at the convenience store where we buy gas, the people that we cross paths with on a daily basis, and yet it doesn't even dawn on us that they have a name and a family and a life and they have struggles and they may need Jesus, but their, their background, we're not aware of them because we're not paying attention to the people that we cross paths with. Jesus 
went out of his way because he knew that there was a divine appointment waiting for him. He had to go through Samaria, and when he got there, he initiates a conversation with a woman that was socially not in his class because he was aware that she was a real person, and she needed what he had to offer. Then what I call arousal begins in verse 10. This is where Jesus piques her interest. John has said at the end of verse 9, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's the understatement of the New Testament. Verse 10, Jesus replied to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will will become in him a fountain of living water, a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. Now he stirred her interest by talking to her about things that she knew. If there's one thing she obviously knows about, it's about coming out every day and drawing water. He says, you know, there's some living water. The phrase in in ancient Greek really would be kind of like what we mean when we say running water. Can you imagine the concept, if you have to draw water from a well every single day, can you imagine the concept of water that is running, that is flowing like a fountain that's right there in you all the time? But she makes the same mistake that Nicodemus made in John chapter 3. You remember in John 3, Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he'll never see the kingdom. And Nicodemus said, wait, wait, that blows my mind. How can a man become small again and be inside his mother's womb? Is that possible? You see, what Nicodemus did was he took the words of Jesus literally when Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He was saying being born again in the sense of, of, uh, of having a, a brand new start, being washed clean, being given a new beginning. Well, here he's talking about living water, about running water that, that, could, that could flow out of you like a fountain. But she takes him literally and she says, well, I'd be interested in that because I'm tired of coming out to this well every single day. If you'll tell me where to find that running water, I, I'm all over that. No, 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 that's, that's not what I mean. I'm not talking about the water that you put in your mouth. I'm talking about the water that refreshes your soul. There was an arousal. He piqued her interest by transitioning the conversation from this world to the next world. He began to talk about spiritual things. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Now look at verse 16. This is what I call acceptance. Look at what happens here. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This which you have said is true. (laughs) Now this is interesting because what he's doing is he's acknowledging to her that he knows her story. I have people occasionally, when I talk to them about Jesus, they'll say things like, well, Pastor, you, you just don't know who I really am. 
You just don't know what's in my background. You don't know about the skeletons in my closet. And my standard answer there is, you're right, I don't, but guess what? I don't need to know them. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's letting her know that he knows about all the skeletons in her closet. In fact, she's surprised that he knows it, but everybody in her town knows it. You've been married five times, and now you're with somebody that's not only not your husband, they're probably somebody else's husband. But Jesus does something remarkable in this moment. He does what is so difficult for us to do. He doesn't wink at her sin as though it doesn't matter. But he's going to reject her sin while accepting her as a human being. We make a real mistake when we say, well, I I could never talk to those people. Those people. If the Spirit of God wasn't in you, getting you up every morning and giving you grace and the ability to live a life that is not in your power to live on your own, guess what? You'd be one of those people. Who are we to hold the gospel back from those people? Let me tell you something. Whoever those people are to you, whoever those people that are not like you, those people who who are committed to certain behaviors that disgust you, Let me tell you something. The walk from where you are to where they are is a shorter distance than the walk that the Son of God took to come be among us. See, we were to God those people. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. He rejected her sin we say sometimes go oh you know you gotta hate the sin and love the sinner you know i'm not much on bumper sticker theology don't don't spout bumper stickers just go talk to people that need to know jesus you say well they they lead an alternative lifestyle they they, they hold a different ideas than, than, than I do. Yeah, yeah, that's why it's called evangelism. That's why it's called sharing the good news. Are they living that way because they've chosen? They think they are. They're really living that way because they're deceived. We've got to tell them the truth. And we've got to see them as real people that we're aware of and that we accept as human beings in need of the Savior. Then there's alignment. This always happens. Jesus, uh, he, he comes to her and he's, he's clearly making her uncomfortable. Okay, he's, he's, uh, he's got information about her that she'd rather not have him know. In fact, this is fascinating. It's not just church people that, that try and put on a facade and act like everything is good and respectable all the time. That is human nature. I mean, there are people who are in terrible situations and, and they want to put their best foot forward. They want to put on a facade so that you think that they're doing better than they are. I mean, I've talked to people in some really horrible 
lifestyles and they were beat up and damaged in every kind of way but they want to they want to present themselves as respectable as best they can because they don't want you to think badly of them that's what she's she's beginning to feel that here so she does what a lot of people do probably all of us at some time when 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 the spirit of god is getting a little close she deflects look at verse 19 the woman said The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, look at what's happening in this conversation. Jesus is making her a little bit uncomfortable, and she says this. Oh, oh, you're a prophet. Well, here's my question. The Jews worship in Jerusalem, and we worship on Mount Gerizim. So, so what's the answer to this, to this whole worship location thing? Now, think about this. Here's a woman who is ostracized in her village. She's getting water in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to be around other people. She's probably been used and abused her whole life. She's had five husbands. She's now a mistress to a married man. You really think she sits around all day pondering worship theology? No. It's a deflection. She's trying to sidetrack the conversation. I have had this happen so many times. I was trying to share the gospel uh, with with a man recently, and and he goes, well, I I understand where you're headed, but... But I just want you to know, I, I know you're a pastor and you got to do church, but, but I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites. I said, you know what? Man, if I wasn't a pastor, I wouldn't go to church either because of all those hypocrites. So I have to stand up on stage every Sunday in front of a room full of hypocrites. I said, it's terrible. He looked at me and I said, but you know what? There's hypocrites everywhere I go. And at least the hypocrites at church are there trying to be less hypocrites today than they were yesterday. <laughs> you see, what he was doing was he was talking about religion. And I was talking about relationship. Years ago, I was sharing the gospel with a woman. And she said, hey, right, right, at, right at this point where, where I'm, I'm explaining the gospel and we've, we've fallen short of the glory of God, and, but God's made a way. And she goes, you know, I've always wondered about angels. And it was all I could do to not roll my eyes. Like, okay, what have you wondered about angels? Well, I just have a lot of questions about angels. I said, you know what? I know the way that you can learn everything you need to know about angels. She goes, what? I said, if you let Jesus come into your life, when you die, you're going to go to heaven and you can meet all the angels for yourself. How about if we talk about Jesus right now? Because the angels are not your greatest need. This woman's greatest need was not to discern the theology of where you worship properly. And Jesus, he doesn't ignore her question, but he gives her an answer that basically shows it's irrelevant in the moment. Woman, 
the day is coming when those who worship are not going to worship in either of these places. That's not your most important issue right now. It's called alignment because Jesus kept coming back to the main thing. He stayed on subject and avoided side issues so that he could call her to action. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. This is fascinating because what he's doing is he is here making the clearest admission of his Messiahship that he's made up until this moment. And it's to a Samaritan woman. Why did he do that? Because by identifying as the Messiah, he is calling her to an action, to believe. Now let me tell you, in these six steps, there are two places that I call satanic pressure points. Two places where Satan will jump into your head and try and take you uh, and try and prevent you from moving forward. The first is this place uh, that I've called arousal. It's the idea when you, you can cross paths with somebody, that's association, you can understand that they're a person who needs to know about Jesus, and that's awareness. But arousal is when you initiate a conversation, and at some point in that conversation, you're going to intentionally bridge from whatever the initial introduction is, you're going to bridge to the topic of spiritual things. Man, it sure is hot today. Yeah, it sure is. I don't care how you start the conversation. By simply initiating the conversation, you're, you're creating an opportunity to take this in a direction that, that talks about Jesus. But at some point, you've got to move from the mundane subject to Jesus. And that is the first place that Satan is going to be like, don't do it. Don't do it. They're going to be offended. They're going to, take, they're going to be insulted. The, you know, and, and how many times do we say, ah, sure is hot today, and we just let the conversation die at the level of the ordinary because we listen to that voice and we are afraid to take that step to get over that speed bump that says, man, it's hot today, but, but I'm just glad to be here because God's blessed me. Your transition to spiritual things are simple as that. What do you mean God's blessed you? Well, because I'm a follower of Jesus, and he's just he's good to me every day. You see, Satan doesn't want the conversation to move from the ordinary to the eternal. That's a satanic pressure point. Now, if you get past that, uh, that speed bump, the very end, this action is where you get the second satanic pressure point. And that's where you can talk to people about Jesus, but if you leave it at the level of information... And you say something like, you know, well, hope to see you again. Maybe we can talk about this some more. Because there's a voice in your head saying, don't press too hard. Don't overstep your bounds. But see, that's the place where you say, hey, would you like to follow Jesus? It's a speed bump. And you got to get over it because that is the point at which everything that's happened leads what if they say no? What if they do? What if they say yes? You'll never know. 
if you listen to the voice of the enemy telling you not to pursue the conversation. At the arousal point, make the shift from the mundane to the eternal. And at the end, at least offer the action. Is there anything that would keep you from following Jesus? Well, no. Would you like to do that? Yeah, I, I think I would. You never know unless you ask. Well, that's the conversation. But now, this chapter gets really interesting. It's quick, but, but look, look at, at where we go. In verse 27, she's going to start making her confession. And we're going to see the public result. And it's one of the great moments in the New Testament. In verse 27, it says, And at this point, his disciples came. And they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what are you seeking, or why are you speaking with her? They came back, and here's a Jewish man talking to a, a Samaritan woman. I mean, they're, they're still locked into stereotypes, but they know better than to challenge him. <laughs> they just whisper among themselves. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is he? And they left the city and were coming to him. Drop down to verse 39. Now from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. There was a change of attitude here. If we go back through all of these verses, let me give you these, these verses. Verses 9, 11, 25, and 29. In verse 9, she sees him as a Jewish man. In verse 11, she's moved a little bit and she calls him sir. In verse 25, she mentions the possibility of Messiah. And in verse 29, she identifies him as the Christ. There is a progression in her understanding of who he is. But it's not just a change of attitude, it's a change of her concerns. She came specifically to get water. She meets Jesus and it says she left her water pot at the well and went back into town to pursue contact with the very people that she spent all day long trying to avoid. Why? Because she sees them as people who need good news. She's the first fruit of an entire village. They need to know what she's discovered, and she won't let her background, she won't let their mocking, she won't let anything in her past keep her from telling them about Jesus. How many times have I been told by a Christian, well, Pastor, you don't know my background. You don't know the skeletons in my closet. I'm not qualified to go tell people about Jesus. You're qualified if God has saved you because none of that stuff in your past matters anymore. And she rushes back to town to tell them about Jesus. And it says in verse 39 that they start flooding out of the village to come his way. Well, go back up to verse 31. I want to, I want to show you the lessons. In verse 31, the disciples have come back, and it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? 
Here we go. They're hearing him literally. He's speaking metaphorically. So he explains it. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Come on, guys. This charges my batteries. This is better than any food you brought from that village. Then he says, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields. They are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have come into their labor. Think about this. The first lesson here is the harvest is the primary task. It is the reason we're still here on earth. If heaven was the point of Christianity, when you got saved, you'd just be scooped up to heaven. But he left us here. Why? Because there's still harvest to be brought in. The harvest is our main priority. He tells them the fields are white to harvest. Now, remember, Jesus is speaking in metaphor. This is the middle of the desert. There's probably not any farmland that he can point to anywhere around this well. But wearing the typical white robes that are still worn in the Middle East, the people are flooding from that village. Jesus says, look, and he points to those people making their way out to the well where Jesus is. The fields are white. The harvest is ready. That's the main thing. That's the second point. If the first lesson is the harvest is the primary task, the second lesson is the harvest is ready. <laughs> you know, the disciples went into town to get food. They didn't, probably didn't want to. You mean we have to go into a Samaritan town? We have to get food prepared by Samaritan hands? There's no evidence that they told anybody in town that right out by the well was Jesus the Messiah. Why? Because they didn't see those Samaritans as real people. They were just extras in their movie. Jesus says, don't make their decision for them by failing to give them what they may be anxious to hear. Finally, he says, the harvest belongs to all who participate. Sometimes you talk to somebody about Jesus and they don't accept him, but you've planted a seed. Somewhere along the way, somebody talks to a person about Jesus and they accept Christ because they've been told about him before. You see, some people plant seeds, some people bring in the harvest, but the, the spiritual principle is everybody gets to celebrate in the end. The laborers are required that's our task. Now, I said I'd make this simple. Let me do this in just with one story. There was a, there was a legendary jewelry salesman in generations past. His name was Harry Winston. Owned a wholesale jewelry shop in the jewelry district in New York City. And it's said that he was observing one of his salesmen make a sales pitch about a particular diamond to a Dutch 
uh, jewelry merchant who was traveling and building his, uh, buying his inventory so that he could stock his, his store in the Netherlands. And the salesman was giving him all the facts and all the details and, and everything about this particular stone. And the Dutch uh, merchant said, uh, you know, it, it really, it's a, it's a wonderful stone, but it's not exactly what I'm looking for. And as he turned to go, Harry Winston stepped up and he said, excuse me, sir, do you mind if I show you that stone one more time? He said, sure, of course. And so Harry Winston took the stone and he began to describe it. He didn't repeat anything that the salesman had said. He didn't talk about the carrot size and the cut and the clarity and, and those kinds of technical issues. He began to describe the beauty of the stone and, and the way, the fascinating way that the light was refracted through the, through the cut uh, uh, of the stone. And, and, and as he painted a picture of the stone, the, the Dutch merchant said, yes, I, I'll take it. I'll, I'll buy it. So they took it off to wrap it and prepare it and, and to bring it back to him. And, and while he was waiting, he turned to Harry Winston and he said, he said, why did I buy that stone from you when I had just said no to it from your salesman? And Harry Winston's answer was, that salesman is one of the best men in the business. He knows everything there is to know about diamonds. But I love them. Let me make application in this way. The number one objection I get from Christians who don't share their faith is this. The number one objection. I don't know enough. They might ask me questions I can't answer. Here's the problem. If that's your concern, then you are trying to sell Jesus. You want to know my definition of evangelism? We're not selling Jesus. Evangelism is simply putting your love for Jesus on public display. When we love Jesus publicly, he becomes much more attractive than when we try and sales pitch somebody into heaven. We're not selling Jesus. We're just loving him publicly. And that is how you do evangelism. If you don't know Jesus Christ, today's the day. You see, he's not just speaking to a woman 2,000 years ago. He's speaking to you to say there are no side issues that you need to be distracted by. You need what I have to offer. Our pastors are going to be right here in this front space. Any one of them would love to share with you how you can come into the kingdom, how you can be adopted into the family of God, how you can be washed clean of your sins and quit being weighed down by all that stuff from your past that you're dragging around behind you. Come let us share with you about Jesus. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you've gotten sidetracked. You're off in a ditch somewhere. You're not doing, you're, you're living that apathetic lifestyle that, 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 that Pastor Zach was talking about. Listen, you want to know the way back to Jesus? You just take a step and he meets you. Come down here and pray. Bring yourself to the, to the foot of the throne of grace and just come home. Come home to where your faith 
can be made strong and Jesus can strengthen you for the life that you've been invited to live. Maybe you need a church family. Start of a new year. Man, maybe you're just in church because you're, you're holding on to the last remnants. You're two weeks into the year and you're, you're, you're barely hanging on to your New Year's resolution that you want to get back into church. Let me tell you something. Holding on to a resolution won't keep you in, in church, but holding on to Jesus will. Why don't you come down and let us talk to you about how to join a family where you can stand shoulder to shoulder with us in accountability. You add into our lives what we need. We add into your life what you need. We walk after Jesus together. We'd love to share that with you. Whatever you need to know Jesus the first time, to come home to Jesus, or to find a family of faith, whatever you need to do, let today be the day. Father, thank you so much. Your word is, is awesome, and the story of this woman preserved for us for 2,000 years. We don't even have her name. And yet, Father, she not only told the people of her village, but her story has been used for 2,000 years. What a remarkable heritage comes from this woman who, by all human standards, has no value at all, and yet... She's clearly great in the kingdom. Father, draw us in this moment to Yourself so that in this day, as we start a new year, we find our way home and we're strengthened by our encounter with Jesus. Father, move among the people who are called Evergreen. Those who are in this place, draw us to Yourself, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me.